The sermon text for today is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1190. Listen as I read God's word. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jerokidon and the Queen Mother, the court, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Saphon, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. 
I have to apologize to Glennis. I gave her this text that has all these names in it. <laughs> and she read them like a champ. Glennis and our entire uh, scripture reading crew are great at taking what we give them and uh, doing such a good job of serving our church by making the word of God come to us clearly. And that's such a, such a gift. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me for a word of prayer. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. God, we do come before you this morning with thanksgiving and with gratitude and with shouts of joy and gladness and joyful songs. Because you are God. All the people's belong to you. You are our good and righteous king who rules us with justice and equity. We worship you this morning and we ask that as we look at this passage that you would help us to see and understand what it says, that you'd help us to see Jesus and that we would leave your people who are changed and transformed, having heard the good news about him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It matters not only where we end up in life, it matters how we get there. One realm of life where I think we all know this to be true is the realm of education. So I want you to just think about a few examples with me. Uh, Think back to the last time you were in any sort of a math class. Okay, for some of you, that was last week. (laughs) For some of you, that was last decade. For some of you, that was in the last century that you were in some sort of formal education math class environment. But either way, there's a sometimes irritating thing in math called showing your work, right? Where your professor or your teacher or whoever it is says, here's the problem, I want you to come up with the solution to that problem, and you need to show me how you get from here to here. And if you get the right answer, but your work that you show demonstrates you have not a clue what you're doing, do you get credit for that? No. (laughs) Because it matters not only where you end up, it matters how you get there. It matters uh, where you end up, and you don't get credit for just sort of taking a stab in the dark or for accidentally getting the answer correct. Think about this just in the realm of testing or exams or quizzes in general. I want you to imagine two students. Both students get a good grade on the exam. One student gets a good grade because they, I don't know, like studied, (laughs) because they paid attention in class and they showed up and they chose sometimes delayed gratification, (laughs) 
I'm going to choose to do you know, my homework or do what I know I need to do instead of doing what might be more fun in the moment. And so that person gets a great grade on the exam. Then imagine another person who also gets a good grade on the exam, but this person has put in just enough effort to not fail the class. Right? They've said to themselves, you know, I'm not going to fail simply because I don't show up. So they show up and they do just the minimum amount, amount of work in order to scrape by. This person gets a good grade on the exam because they studied and put in the work. This person gets a good grade on the exam because they sat next to the person who did. And they were able to glean some answers, let's say, uh, and they got a good grade on the exam. Every single one of us would say it matters not only where you end up that you get a good grade, it matters how you get there. This is the reality. We know this. It matters not only where we end up in life, it matters how we get there. This morning, we are beginning a new series of messages where we are thinking about the subject of politics, and I know this is The reason that all of you were in the room today is because you couldn't wait for us to think about the subject of politics today. Uh, The guiding principle that undergirds this series is what we've just been talking about. It matters not only where we end up, it matters how we get there. In other words, it matters who we vote for. It matters what policies we might endorse or prefer. But it matters as much, if not more, what kind of people we are in the process. Another way of saying it is that it is not a win for the kingdom of God if we vote for the quote-unquote right candidate or we support the quote-unquote right policy and we are angry, judgmental, condescending people in the process. It matters not only where we end up, it matters not only who we vote for, it matters what kind of people we are in the process. And that's sort of the the idea behind the series, is we want to just think about what kind of people do we need to be as we engage the subject of politics. We're in a series where we're thinking about four virtues that we need to embody if we are going to engage well in the political realm, and those virtues are the virtue of presence, Humility, love, courage. Those are the four virtues we're going to think about. Today we're going to be thinking together about the virtue of presence. The passage that you heard read uh, just a few moments ago is a letter that was written to the Jewish people who are living in exile in Babylon. And I want to spend some time looking at this passage. And as we do, the first thing that we can sort of observe about this passage is we can observe the reason for the letter. Okay, why did Jeremiah write this letter in the first place? That's the question. Uh, In order to find that out, we have to sort of sketch a little bit about what's happening in this sort of section of the book of Jeremiah. And so I'm going to read you just very briefly a few passages beginning in chapter 25, where God's word comes to the people of Judah and Jerusalem through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is what Jeremiah says in chapter 25, verse 3. He says to the people, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. He goes on in verse 8, therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. 
I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. Verse 11, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So you hear God's word of his coming judgment and his coming justice on the people because they have for decades and for even longer than that, have refused to listen to and obey the voice of God. And so he's going to bring his judgment on them. Not surprisingly, this message is not very well received. (laughs) If you flip the page to chapter 26, we read this in verse 8. As soon as Jeremiah finished telling the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Imagine being given this task from God. I want you to go spend decades of your life communicating a message that no one's going to listen to, and then they're going to want to kill you because they don't like what you're saying. Fast forward to chapter 28, where there's this other prophet who comes along with a very different message, and this prophet's name is Hananiah. And Hananiah speaks, quote-unquote, on behalf of God in verse 2 when he says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So you've got these two prophets who are communicating on behalf of God, supposedly, two totally different messages. One says, you're going to be there for 70 years, meaning some of you are going to watch your grandchildren grow up in exile. And another prophet comes along and says, don't listen to this guy. It's not going to be 70 years. It's not going to be that bad. It's going to be two years until you're brought back to the land when God rescues you. And so this is the reason Jeremiah wrote the letter in the first place. The letter that Jeremiah wrote, it confirms the difficult reality of God's judgment on Judah's sin. That's what this letter is written for. It's written as a way of saying, don't listen to this prophet named Hananiah. He's not telling you the truth. He's telling you what you want to hear rather than what is actually true. And so the letter confirms the difficult reality of God's judgment on Judah's sin that comes in the form of them going into exile for 70 years. So that is the reason for the letter. The second thing we can observe is the content of the letter. So the content of the letter, uh, we're going to focus what we see in verses 4 through 7. And as we read this, look in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. So God's message to those who are living in exile is settle in. You're going to be here for a while. Think about this. If you were in exile for two years or in exile for 70 years, you live very differently. 
If you were in exile for two years, you live with your bags packed. You live at any moment ready for God to rescue you and to whisk you away from those dangerous Babylonian people. And you don't, you stay on the distance. You, you stay distanced. You stay sort of pulled back. You don't, you, you never engage. You just sort of stay in this little secluded Jewish community and you never give yourself to the city of Babylon if you're only there for two years. But God says, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to be there for 70 years. So build houses, plant gardens, have children. Don't decrease, increase, and fill the land. So this is God's word to them, is settle in. But he goes on and he says, not only settle in, his instruction to them is also desire the good of the city. Listen to verse 7. He says, also, seek the peace. It's the word shalom that you've likely heard before. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means wholeness. It means flourishing. It means not just the, the, the absence of hostility. It's the presence of wholeness and prosperity and flourishing. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And more than that, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too prosper. He sends them into exile in Babylon and says, pray for the city where you now live as exiles. By commanding them to pray, God is saying to his people, I want you to actively desire the good of the people that are around you in the place where you live as exiles. Praying for someone, praying for their well-being, requires us to turn our hearts towards those people. And that's God's instruction. Settle in, you're going to be here for a while, and actively desire the good of the people that you find in the city of Babylon, where you now live as exiles. This is God's instruction to his people. And I think it's only appropriate that we just pause for a moment and recognize how completely shocking this letter would have been to those people who received it. The armies of Babylon decimated the temple, decimated the city of Jerusalem, decimated the southern kingdom of Judah. They stole all of the sacred furniture from within, from within the temple. And of course, you know, their level of respect for these things is probably not very high. You know, it's valuable stuff and they're probably carting it around like the, something they found at a garage sale. <laughs> they carted this stuff away. They decimated the city. And all the people who were in Jerusalem, most of them anyways, and many of the people from the nation of Judah as a whole, were forced to walk all the way from Jerusalem, all the way over into Babylon, in a kind of demoralizing, dehumanizing death march. As they marched from Jerusalem into the nation of Babylon, it was an indication, it was a, a tangible, every step was a reminder of the death of their nation as they knew it. Read the book of Lamentations which is also written by Jeremiah about the events of the destruction of Jerusalem. And you read about how bad things got and how scarce resources were in the city of Jerusalem where mothers were resorting to cannibalism. Read Psalm 79, which talks about the, the temple being destroyed, being sacked, and there being dead bodies piled up in the streets because Babylon killed people without discrimination. 
God has the audacity to say, to write a letter to these people who have just experienced the trauma of what they've experienced, and he has the audacity to write a letter to them and say, seek the peace and the prosperity of that city. Pray for those people. Imagine with me if there was a group of thousands of modern day, like right now today, Israelis in the conflict that's happening right now in the Middle East. They are carried off against their will into the Gaza Strip where they live under Hamas. And they receive a letter from someone claiming to be a prophet and this letter says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where you now live as exiles. Imagine they receive a letter that says, pray for the peace, desire the good of Hamas. That's what it would have felt like for them to receive this letter. What do you mean? Are you kidding me? Seek the good and the flourishing of Babylon? Have you seen, God, what these people have done to our nation and what they've done to our people, and you're telling me to seek their good and their prosperity and their flourishing? And that this is exactly what God tells his people to do. He says, I want you to love the place where you are, even if you were surrounded by your enemies, even if those people have not treated you kindly or justly or with a shred of dignity, even if these people have harmed you and you've experienced massive amounts of both individual, personal, and like national trauma because of these people, I want you to love the place where you are. I want you to invest in the place where you live as exiles. In other words, God is saying to his people, I want you to give Babylon the gift of your presence. Don't stay at a distance. Don't withdraw, don't cloister away and just wait out your time. I want you to give them the gift of your presence. I want you to love the city where you now live as exiles. And this is the content of the letter. So the reason for the letter is to confirm the difficult reality of God's judgment against their sin. The content of the letter is God says, seek the flourishing of the city where you live as exiles. That's God's instruction. Seek the peace and the prosperity and the wholeness and the flourishing of the city where you now live as exiles surrounded by your enemies. That's the content of the letter. The last thing we should think about this morning is the application of this letter for us. Okay, that's the, that's the situation, that's the uh, content, that's what God has instructed his people to do. And we should also think about, okay, what's the application of this letter for us today? The New Testament in particular is very clear that we as followers of Jesus, we are exiles. It doesn't matter whether this is your home native country or whether you, you were born somewhere else. It doesn't matter how... Christianized our government is or at one point was, how Christianized our culture is or at one point was, none of that matters. We are all exiles. And the reason for that is because our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. What that means is that even if you are a natural born, full on citizen of the United States of America, this is not where your true citizenship lies. 
doesn't mean that your citizenship in this country isn't a gift to be embraced and to be enjoyed. It just means that even if you are a full-on Native American, you are still an exile here because your true citizenship is in the kingdom of God, not in the earthly country where you live. We are exiles. I don't think there's any question that God wants us to, like those who lived in Babylon, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city where we now live as exiles. God desires that for us. So how does that look? What does it look like for us to seek the holistic well-being of the city where we live as exiles? I'm going to suggest two uh, sort of ways that this looks. The way this looks is, number one, we live as thoughtful contributors to the political process. One of the ways that we seek the peace and the prosperity of the city where we live as exiles is we live as thoughtful and well-informed contributors to the political process, whatever that looks like. I think we all probably understand this that national-level politics tends to suck the air out of the room, right? Uh, you just look at where the money tends to go and where the media attention tends to go, and if you just follow those things, sometimes we can forget that like, local-level politics like, are a thing as well. You won't even know that if you just look at sort of the media attention on it. And of course, there's you know, plenty of really good reasons to pay attention to what's happening at a national level, But what I want to suggest this morning is that we seek the peace of the city by seeking the peace of our city. We seek the good and the flourishing of the city, you know, quote-unquote, the city, by actively seeking the good and the well-being of our city. And so for some of us, that's St. Anthony Village, that's Columbia Heights, that's Northeast Minneapolis, it's New Brighton, it's St. Paul, it's Roseville, it's Blaine, it's Shoreview, it's all those places where we live, where we work, where we learn, where we play, all of those are the place where we first seek the peace of the city. It's the Twin Cities generally. We desire on a local level to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, knowing that the people that are in uh, political offices in our community, things like mayors, things like city council members, like those who are on the school boards, those people in those specific roles have a much greater impact on the flourishing of our individual communities than who's in the White House. It doesn't mean that who's in the White House is unimportant, and there's certainly aspects of you know, who's in you know, charge of the country that like, trickles down. But the people who are on our school boards have far more of a disproportionate impact on our students than who's president right now. And so we seek the peace and the good of the city by first seeking the peace and the prosperity of our cities, the places we live and work and learn and play. And of course, the same thing is true on a national level. We engage there as well, okay? I'm basically going to spend no time today talking about this. I don't need to convince you that being engaged and voting for who's president is important, okay? This is what it looks like in part for us to seek the peace and the prosperity of our city is we live as thoughtful contributors to the political process. 
And this is the point where we have to, like, we have to fight for balance here. Because we not only seek the peace of our city by living as thoughtful contributors to the political process, we also seek the peace of the city when we love our neighbors. We seek the peace and prosperity of the city by walking across the street and learning the names of our neighbors. Yes, being engaged in the political process and voting for who's in whatever office, whether it's citywide or statewide or national level, yes, that is important. Undeniably, that is important. And yes, we have a responsibility to be wise stewards of the political influence that we have. And at the same time, we have to remember that seeking the prosperity of the city through the political process is a supplement to loving our neighbors well. What we're talking about here today engaging in the political process and you know letting your voice be heard and voting and being well informed and all that stuff this would have been complete and utter nonsense to those who received the letter from Jeremiah they had no voice into the political process this would have been utter nonsense to the first 200 years of christians in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd centuries who had like no voice into the political process, right? Like they were a marginalized, persecuted minority group. They didn't have like the ability to, to, you know, change the political landscape through how they voted. There are people all around the world today, followers of Jesus, many of whom live in uh, closed countries that are hostile, that, are, uh, that, that want nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, whether it's in the Middle East or whether it's in Asia or wherever, there are people today who are followers of Jesus who have zero input into the political process. And all those people, from Jeremiah's recipients of his letter to the early church, to those who live with no input today in the political process, they could still seek the peace and the prosperity of their cities, even though they had zero earthly political influence. And what that means is it what we're talking about here today? Engaging in the political process and you know, all that stuff. What this has to mean is that that is a non-essential part of what it means to seek the peace of the city. I want to be very careful. I didn't say it was not important. I said it was non-essential. Meaning that when we have political input in the process and we've been given a voice, praise God for that. When we've been given voice in the process, yes, we live as wise stewards. And it's a supplement to what God has instructed all followers of Jesus everywhere to do, which is love our neighbors. And that is the primary, most important, most impactful way that we seek the peace of the city. Is by loving our neighbors. The kingdom of God does not come through what we do in the ballot box. The kingdom of God comes when we walk across the street and we learn the names of our neighbors and we love them well and we invite them into the life-giving way of Jesus. 
and the Spirit of God does a miracle inside of them and makes them alive to the things of God, and they are transformed into the image of Christ. That's how the kingdom of God comes. And absolutely, what we do in the political sphere is really important. And also, we have to be careful that we don't think it's more important than it actually is. Politics are important. Politics are not everything. We love our neighbors well. We live as thoughtful contributors to the political process. And this is what it looks like for us to seek the peace and the prosperity and the flourishing of our communities. So the question that I'll sort of throw out to you just to to ponder is this. In what ways may these be out of balance in my life? So you think about both sides of that. Engaging in the political process and loving your neighbors. In what ways might these things be out of balance in my life? Example, you may sit down and start thinking about it and say, you know, I do spend a lot of time reading things about politics, thinking about politics, watching YouTube videos, watching the news. You know, it takes a lot of my attention. I think about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. And you know what? I can't name the neighbors who live around me on the street. I can't name the people who live next door to me in my apartment complex. I can't name all of my coworkers who office next to me. I can't name the parents of my children's friends. And that might be an indication. Maybe something's out of balance. Maybe I care too much about this and need to have a more balanced life where I also recognize, yeah, it's so important that I love my neighbors. And it might be the opposite, where you sit down and you say, you know, uh, I, th- I think I do a pretty good job of loving my neighbors well, and I, you know, you know, I want them to know Jesus, and, and I'm you know, engaged in that way. And, you know, I haven't really taken the stewardship of my political influence very seriously. I've never really cared to do a whole lot of, you know, investigation or any, you know, trying to, like, do research. I've sort of just gone in saying, like, well, you know, I'll just kind of check boxes of people that I've never, like, actually I don't know anything about, <laughs> if, if at all I check boxes. And so there may be, uh, for different people, different ways where we say, yeah, you know, I, I need to have a little bit more balance in my life with this. I need to be more balanced in one direction or the other. And you know how you can figure out which way you're sort of out of balance? You can sit down and ask God, right? It's like the, the answer that you should be getting used to by now is like, if you don't know, sit down and say, God, would you help me see? Are there ways in which my, my, the, the way that I think about politics and the way I think about engagement and, and seeking the peace of the city, are there ways in which this is like really out of balance? God will tell you. Also, you can ask people around you. They will be happy to tell you all the ways that you were wrong in this, right? And so there are ways of discerning, am I doing this in the most healthy way or do I need some, some balance in some of these areas? And so I just encourage you to spend a few moments thinking about that or processing that uh, sometime this week. But the point is this. We love the place where we live as exiles by giving them the gift of our presence. That means loving our neighbors. It means being engaged in the political process. We give the gift of our presence to our community. And here's why we do it. We give ourselves for the good of our city because Jesus gave himself for our good. This is why we do it. 
We don't give ourselves to the good of our city so that we can win politically. We give ourselves for the good and the flourishing of our city because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus left the riches and the glory of heaven in order to take on a human form and live life in our broken world and he lived under the tyranny of the Roman government that the Jewish people hated. He experienced that. He lived as an exile in our world. And then he went to the cross and he suffered and died and he was exiled outside the city. And so when we engage in the political process, when we seek the good and the flourishing of our communities, it's a joyful response to Jesus having already done that for us. We don't do it to win. We do it because we've seen what Jesus has done for us and our motivation, our desire is to live in obedience to Jesus and to be transformed into his image. As we come to the communion table today, we are reminded, as we are each week, of the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. We come to the communion table today having seen this call from God to us as exiles to seek the peace and the flourishing of the city. And we look to the cross and we see God accomplished our ultimate prosperity and flourishing by sending us his son. And as we come forward and receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that are represented in those elements, we get to remember what God has done for us. And that's what leads us outwards into our communities. That's what leads us outward into our city to love other people well and to love people, not only just individually, but also through our engagement in the political process because that's what God has done for us. And so we get to remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for us today. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection, and then we will come together and celebrate Christ.